Hello and welcome to episode 115 of the Replacement Level Podcast. I'm Ross Carey. Thanks for listening. Thrilled to be joined right now by James Fegan. James covers the White Sox for The Athletic. You can give him a follow on Twitter at JRFegan. James, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. Well, James, I ask everyone this right at the top of the show. Tell me what initially attracted you to baseball in the first place. Oh, man, that's a tough question. Uh, as far as like as a kid, my mother worked for Michael Reese Hospital, which is in Chicago and has since been demolished years ago. And uh, she used to get free ticket White Sox tickets as a uh, as a perk of her gig. And I'd probably wind up going to around 10 games a year uh, as a result of that. And because it was already where we lived and where we were closer to. So kind of watching the White Sox and, and learning that Frank Thomas and Robin Ventura were the two guys for me to pay attention to. That was kind of my genesis and liking and caring about baseball. Uh, you know, for the longest time until like maybe they started their second three-peat, I didn't really realize that Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen were a bigger deal than Robin Ventura and Frank Thomas, as, as far as I was concerned as a kid. We know that Robin Ventura is the real 23. <laughs> I don't know if it went to that level, but yeah, I, I thought of it as pretty much on the same, same uh, you know, tier. Well, let's get into the White Sox. I found them to be a very interesting team this offseason, mostly because they missed. They missed on Manny Machado, who was a player that they've been targeting for a long time. We heard them connected to Machado in potential trade talks last season, and people were wondering why, 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 and it's because they wanted him for the long haul, and they thought having him there for a few months would help them get him. They didn't make a trade, and they weren't able to sign him this offseason despite offering the highest AAV. How long were they in on Machado and what do they do now that they missed out on him? The hypothetical about trading for him to give him a year uh, in the organization to just have a deeper appreciation for what they're doing, that was winter meetings in December of 2017. And I'd imagine the, the admiration for him and viewing him as a potential option as someone in free agency when they had their payroll cleared out was something that they envisioned at the start of the rebuild, uh, the winter meetings before that, when they first started to tear down. So a long, long time, like it, it, they absolutely were convinced and, that you know, that this guy was somebody who fit in their organization for the, the long haul. And they didn't get him. And it ultimately it came down to two years and $20 million difference. Is that worth losing the player that they had coveted so much? I would typify it more as the $50 million guarantee difference. I mean, that was something that Kenny Williams said in the immediate aftermath is that they couldn't get to the same level of guarantee as, or they weren't willing to get to the same level of guarantee is, is better to say in the, these instances of uh, $300 million. And that was probably where the Padres sold them. The, the argument of, incentives and staying healthy into his 30s and being able to earn all these escalators uh wasn't as convincing as the you know straight one-to-one comparison of how much money do i have in the bank uh guaranteed to me if i blow out both my achilles hustling up the first baseline uh you know in april and that that seems like a pretty straightforward measure of how this was won and lost after they missed on machado harper was still available and given that they had a certain amount of money set aside for a star player, did they actually pursue Harper with any sincerity? They met with him in the offseason. They, they liked him. They you know talked parameters with him. I don't think that Dave Lozano called Rick Hahn and told him that Machado was signing with the Padres and Rick hung up and then called up Scott Boris immediately afterwards. 
uh, it seemed like that that process had already run its course as far as feeling out what would be required and already seeing that since they were not able to get up to the guarantee of what Machado was demanding and the fact that Bryce was demanding even more than that and kind of wanted to set the record, it, it seemed like that, uh, that pursuit had already gone as far as it was going to go. Um, to double back to your question, which I don't think I answered the first time, no, I don't think it's, it's worth it to lose over that. I think given how long they targeted this guy, how big a part of that plan it was, how much they had just cleared out payroll to you know, levels that so low that it's been years since they've been this low, and you know, the whole idea is that they're willing to spend when the, the, their prospects are ready and blooming, and that, that is ideally happening in the next year or two, and that Manny would fit into that. I think they, to really convince people this effort was going to be successful and genuine and, and uh, bring sustained success that this franchise has literally never had, that never made playoffs back-to-back in their franchise history, that they needed to go above and beyond and do uh, something they'd never done before and not really have any limits to this uh, to convince people it's going to work. And right now there's a lot of angst. Uh, in the White Sox fan base that I think is deserved because they're, they're not convinced that, you know, that financial commitment level is going to be breached uh, that's necessary to compete with, you know, a league where a lot of teams are rebuilding, which is shown by the fact that that's the team kind of team they lost May Machado uh, out to, is another rebuilder, uh, one of many. It is a team that is prospect-heavy. They have most of those prospects that they got from trades, trades with the Red Sox, trades with the Cubs, trades with the Nationals. Some of those players are creeping up and look to make an impact this year. But just looking at the 40-man, looking at the depth in the minors, seeing that they missed out on their star in Machado, where do you see this organization headed in the next two or three years? I don't think Machado necessarily sways whether or not... I think. I mean, obviously, they still have a lot of free agent budget room. They can make a lot of mid-tier solutions that will definitely help them. I mean, even as unsexy as some of their moves were this offseason, it definitely got better, and, and they definitely have the ceiling in some of their prospects to be probably perennial division contender. Whether or not this I wouldn't think this system as currently is is this type of juggernaut from the Cubs a few years back or even as good as we thought the Royal system was uh, back when it was headed by Hosmer and Stockis, where it's like the best farm system of all time. And at some point, if everything meets maturation, they're going to be the best team in baseball, regardless of how much they supplement from the outside. Uh, a lot of things kind of have to click right, and they really have to spend well in free agency. But with Cleveland on, you can already see where the downside of their run comes, and you know the Royals and uh, the Tigers still in the earlier stages of rebuilding without the huge glut of trade assets that the White Sox started their process with. I think the White Sox in the next five years, five, five six, seven years, are going to win some division titles. Um, there's definitely things that go wrong that make me wrong about that, but there, there's definitely the, the promising start of a core, at least on a position-based side, even if some of the uh, pitching doesn't really work out because you know you have if you have three top pitching prospects right now, two of them are hurt. And the other one is Dylan Cease, who has an injury history, so there might be a lot of supplementing on the pitching side that has to happen. But uh, yeah, I, I think that they probably have the position talent in place to break their franchise history of never making the playoffs back-to-back at some point in the next five, seven years. What's the relationship at this point between Rick Hahn and Ken Williams? Is there any animosity between them? Is there any friction there? Every once in a while we hear reports that they're not always on the same page. What's going on with those two? 
I don't sense any kind of like actual problems between those two guys. I mean, I think that the shift um, when Rick Hahn took over as GM, a lot of that came with kind of the effort to shift away from Kenny being the public face of the organization who addresses the media all the time and, and uh, directing all that to Rick. And Rick kind of has a very measured way of layering everything out about where everything stands. And he's very, you know, you don't hear lines out of Rick, for example, of like, we can't get 300 million. We can't make that commitment. Kenny's a lot more frank and, uh, you know, matter of fact and with things like that. Whereas Rick would, you know, point out that that's not an absolute rule of any kind. They don't have any uh, broad organizational policy against opt-outs because he kind of thinks everything out and thinks all, all scenarios and wants to make sure that nothing he says is construed as a, an all-consuming rule that, that the White Sox will never violate. Whereas Kenny, when he does speak, and I think that the, the break between, you know, the reaction to Machado between him and Rick was very much about Kenny being impromptu and immediately reacting to the news within 20 minutes of it happening, and Rick kind of having a press conference later on where he has all these talking points and, and all the kind of larger mapped-out statements of how the White Sox react in the situation, Kenny will just give you kind of the basic matter-of-fact details about the negotiation, and sometimes that will look a lot different from how Rick will present it, and that will show a communication discord. I don't think that there's any actual real disagreements between them or that there's resentment between them. But I think for the most part, the organization has tried to shift the communication to go through Rick to, for the sake of consistency. And whenever that falters or whenever you kind of get Kenny, you get a lot more frankness and uh, it seems like they're, they're, there's a discord, but I think they're really just giving different descriptions of the same facts. Let's talk about some of the players and some of the prospects on the roster. Eloy Jimenez would be getting a lot more hype about him and a lot more talk about him outside of Chicago if it wasn't for Vlad Guerrero Jr. Big monster bat out of him. Not the best defender, not the most uh, athletic guy around the bases. But what do you expect from him this year? Do you expect him to get called up in May and stay up once he's there? I think the date I circled on my calendar when it's the combination of being 20 days in the minors and a the first home game that they can promote the the heck out of and, and draw a bunch of ticket sales is april 26 so i'd expect him to basically get promoted there and, and never come back i think like a reasonable expectation for Eloy in a rookie season and still being 22 and even with his drastically reduced strikeout numbers last year uh still a leverage power swing with some swing and miss is to be a guy who probably uh, you know, floats around 800 OPS with more power uh, than OBP from the initial going and probably, you know, may give him, if you just look at August and September, really starting to come into his own a bit more and maybe looking a lot more like the, the monster middle of the order bat that the White Sox are hoping for the next, you know, uh, six, seven years. And do you believe he is that? Do you believe he is that middle of the order bat? There are things that can stop him if he keeps getting nagging injuries uh, and there's certainly a possibility that and given how outfield heavy the white Sox position depth is maybe it's pre preferable um that he becomes a dh at some point but yeah I, I i have no reason to really doubt the hitting skill like the him having like 14 kind of rusty at bats in spring training is like the worst i've seen him in the two years he's been in the organization and uh, it's really a blip with nothing to worry about and He's only gotten better, and he's only improved, and he's only sharpened things since he got here. And his conditioning over the offseason is, is supposed to be a lot better. I, there's always uncertainty with prospects, but he's as, as 
the one thing he does is as certain as it gets for any prospect that I've dealt with in my short time. It's funny, you mentioned April 26th as that being past the date, the service time date, and a home game. And that's the date I think the Blue Jays are also going to call up Vlad Jr. as that the same thing applies. It's past the service time date, and it's a home series versus Oakland. So that could be a very exciting day for baseball fans if they both debut on the same day, and for fantasy owners alike. <laughs> be both exciting and probably a day of deep cynicism that something so calculated of both of them coming up after the deadline happening at the exact same time. I think all the calls of the offseason about how um, this is just kind of shameful that they're being held for such transparent reasons that are uh, you know, violating the spirit of CBA. I, I think that would only intensify it that, that those days lined up like that. Oh, and, and it is shameful and it's awful and the players are completely getting hosed here. But that's the reality of the situation. And they're not going to be as transparent to do it the day they're eligible. I think they will wait that, wait that extra week to make sure they get them at home games, for home games. Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, it. part of it is just not being that transparent. And part of it is if you're the White Sox and you, you didn't land Manny Machado this offseason and you've been in the bottom five of ticket sales during a very grueling rebuild, yeah, I think if... Um, if Rick Hahn didn't promote Eloy on a for a home game, I think the PR department would have rightfully they they'd have just as big a grievance to file as Eloy would have with the players' association about being held down for service time. Let's talk about Jan Moncada. Moncada was the showcase piece in the return back from Chris Sale, and Chris Sale has been dominant with the Red Sox. Obviously, helped them win a World Series last year, and Moncada has struggled a little bit. He showed glimpses of why he was so coveted, why he was the top-rated prospect for a while, but really he struggled since he's moved to Chicago. What do you expect from him this season? I would probably project the strikeout rate in the 30% range. I don't think that we're going to see a you know lightning leap. I think you'd be happy to see it shaved down from 33 to 30% for him. Uh, it, it's hard to map out exactly what the improvement is going to look like, because uh, even his September, where a lot of the mechanical adjustments that they mapped out for him, as far as changing his hand placement and controlling his top hand, you, you still saw a 30% strikeout rate for him, and you probably didn't see as much power production as he was associated with the guy who has that kind of uh, uh, raw pop uh, as he should offer. Um, and he's definitely kept striking out the string this spring so far. But um, he's 23. He's absolutely uh, enormously physically talented. He has incredible bat speed. A breakout could really happen at any time. He just has that ability. He, he brings so much extra to the table as far as just automatically having a 10% walk rate and uh, being able to extend, extend uh, singles for extra base hits. And I, I think the most reasonable thing is a mild upgrade. And, you know, he really, by WRC Plus, he was threatening league average last year. And if that jumps up to like something like 110 uh, WRC plus where he threatens more like a 340 on base percentage and, and uh, slugs in the low to mid 400s. That would be a reasonable and encouraging increase. But you know, at this point, the um, moving to third base kind of adds more scrutiny on the bat that maybe he didn't have as a second baseman. And it's maybe a little bit harder for him to carve out a above average profile um, from the hot corner. I don't think he's really going to have any trouble defensively as far as handling position. He's got such a massive power arm. It's probably going to be, if anything, better utilized there. But uh, there's there's uh, still a lot. It's it's all comes down to really strikeouts and contact. And 
eliminating a strikeout looking total that was, I believe, 29 more than the next closest uh, person in the league. And that person was Chris Davis. So you usually want to be a little better than Chris Davis in that regard. It, it's it's the one thing that really pulls down a, a really dazzling tools profile. Yeah, the tools are there, but I will say if he ends up at a 110 RC plus or OPS plus, if he's 10% above league average at the plate, maybe he's a two-win player. That's just not the return you want for Chris Sale. And I look at Sale this year. This is his last year in Boston. It's the uh, unless they re-sign him or extend him, but this was the last year of the extension he had signed with Chicago. Let's be conservative and say that Sale is worth 15 wins. His first two years and this year, he'll have 15 war with the Red Sox. Do you think Moncada produces that during the seven years that the White Sox have control of him? Do you think he gets 15 war total? At this point, I want to shade optimistic and say yes. I would say 110 is what I think more for this season than I would cap him at uh, down the road. At this, like Maybe it'd be more... I, I don't know if I should be encouraged the fact that he has a great batting eye and think that it'll carry him through and, and it'll provide a bigger uh you know windfall down the road but at the same time if he was doing what he was doing right now just on all physical tools and he had no concept of plate then you'd say well there's a world of upside because he uh once he figures literally anything out at all he'll be great whereas his his idea of the play is already kind of polished and this is what it is um but i would say i think he could be a good defensive third baseman and there is probably i mean ceiling wise 30 home run power, really, if he taps into it. So I think there's probably going to be some good years in there in his mid to late 20s that kind of pump him up over that kind of two-and-a-half win, two-win per season uh, average that I would think he gets there. Let's talk about Dylan Cease. You mentioned him earlier. He came over in the Jose Quintana deal along with Eloy, so that looks pretty good for them at this point. Cease is expected to contribute at some capacity this year. They're being a little conservative with him in spring training. Tell me about him a little bit. I, I interpreted the conservative spring as a very transparent that they expect him to be in the majors. His, I believe his career high in innings his last year is only 124. So for him to kind of get promoted in, say, August, which seems like the time frame, uh, if you ask Rick Hahn, he basically... The simplified version of Think of Cease's year is to look at what they did with Michael Kopech last year and just repeat it, uh, except take out the part about having yips in the first half of the season, is that they are going to give him a year in AAA and probably promote him in August and ride him out for the season to do that. Be able to do that and expand his workload to that degree and have the tail end of that workload happening at the highest level of competition of his career, it makes all the sense to really have not next to nothing in spring, but definitely a lower spring load to kind of justify being able to ration him up more down the stretch. Maybe that makes him a little rusty in his first couple of starts in Charlotte, you know, since he only threw one inning, and that was his first game yesterday uh, for all of spring. But um, I don't, I don't, uh, I don't like him probably to the level that I'm super high on Kopech, even uh, post injury. I don't think the fastball is quite necessarily the same level of life, but he has been doing stuff to kind of increase the spin rate to really kind of. Uh, I think when I paired it up, looking at the TrackMan data and paired it up to major leagues, it was like top. 10 percentile as far as his four-seam spin rate. So he, he's really effective with it on the, low, on the top of the zone. The curveball uh, made a lot of steps forward after kind of adjusting to his spike grip uh, last season and gave him a bit more consistency. The, the start I mentioned in Winston-Salem back in May, he probably threw 
20 to 25 changeups and with a lot of effectiveness, you know, granted against Carolina League hitters, but just the willingness to use it that much, it, given how good his play, fastball is, he really just has to have it and use it to at least get kind of average-ish results out of it. Uh, and it is kind of trending more towards an average pitch. I think the slider, he would tell you, is very uh, much in development. And I don't know necessarily, given how comfortable he is throwing the curveball against hitters at both hands, what specifically it gives to him other than just another look for the sake of another look. But um, there's still some, there are a lot of scouts who tagged him as a, a reliever back in the early going, and I think that's really gone after kind of a healthy season and how productive he was as a, as a, a starter last year. But there's still some... Uh, just a general slightly below average command that is still a vestige of uh, why he was profiled that way. That's probably going to make him more concealing in the, the number two level range. And the other concern about him being a starter down the road would just be durability, given that he has got Tommy Don in high school. He dealt with shoulder problems near the tail end of 2017. I, I, there's, there's been a lot of upward trend with him, and, but I, I know that there have been some scouts. Uh, it, it's hard to separate the scouts who were kind of down on him early on and are trying to sl- slowly giving that up as he progresses and makes improvements and how much that still just is being questionable about the command and how smooth the delivery is and, and uh, how much that will keep him from being uh, a, a great top-level strike thrower in the majors. The White Sox have another highly regarded prospect in Luis Robert. He comes from Cuba. They signed him when he was a teenager. I think someone at the time, some scout, had the ridiculous quote that he was already the best baseball player in the world at that time. And it turns out, of course, he was not. He's been fine, but he was not the best baseball player in the world when he was 19 and in Cuba. What has his development path been like? A lot of thumb problems. I mean, uh, adding on to the kind of tall tales thing, I think Rick Renneria gave us a sprint time for him to first. Um back when he saw him in the, the DSL um, when he first got signed. And I took the time he gave and put it in like the scouting scale time thing. And it was, you know, above it. It was like Billy Hamilton times. And I think realistically, he's more probably a 60 to 70 ish runner. He's definitely well above average and he's super aggressive. So it plays up. But the thing that uh, both Luis Robert has been tagged for and uh, not show showed up so far in games is power. He's supposed to have, this uh, double plus raw, and because of the thumb stuff, uh, you know, and because of his kind of wrist weakening from being in a cast and, and not uh, getting regular playing time, he wasn't really able to tap into his power in any kind of meaningful way until some hints of it in the Arizona Fall League. It's been very present um, in spring training until he jammed his thumb again sliding to a base the other day, and we're kind of waiting and seeing if he comes back by Thursday like he's prescribed to, but. Given how much swing and miss is probably going to be, it's probably going to be a 20% or above or 25% uh, you know, strikeout rate sort of guy. And he's really going to need the power to carry the profile. And even if, you know, given how much speed he has and, and, and sticking in center field looks more likely, you know, he could make value of other ways to be kind of the, a core piece, a absolute stud who kind of drives his team to be a contender year in, year out. The power needs to show up. That's the, that's the thing to watch for this year because um, we haven't seen it at this point in games with any consistency because we haven't seen Luis Robert in games with any consistency. And hopefully the idea is if he's healthy, it shows up consistently. But until that does, that's the question about him. I want to ask you about the organizational philosophy of developing pitchers. Don Cooper has a good reputation, even though he is not a analytics guy. He is an old school 
baseball coach. There were reports when Sale initially signed with Boston, or was traded to Boston, rather, that he was telling the media that he was going to strike out more people because Cooper kept wanting him to pitch to contact, and he he said that it was because he wanted him to pitch later into games and to get more innings. But is that Cooper's philosophy? He wants pitchers to pitch to contact more? Probably more than the rest of the league that they value ground balls and think they can generate weak contact. But I would, I would, uh, I would hesitate to take that policy with Sale, which was very much about trying to squeeze as much as much possible at Sale and having him ratchet up. And you know, those teams. Back in those years, those final years Sale was there, they basically needed Cy Young production uh, unabated throughout the entire year for like a 230-inning season to really have a puncher's chance of making the playoffs. So they're really trying to just rack their brains on way- ways to like extract the absolute most valuable out of Sale, and the idea is that he could do something uh, you know, old-school Verlander-like where he ratchets up and you know hikes his velocity up to the top of the scale on command when he needs it, or as throughout games progressively and maybe throws lower 90s and gets ground balls and is more efficient in the early going. They were just trying to get as many innings as possible. And obviously not every guy, you know, that's not something you wouldn't tell Dylan Kobe to hold back or or pitch to contact because you're trying to get Dylan through the lineup two times and you're happy with that. Like there's different treatments for different guys. If you talk to Cooper right now, you know, he'll probably emphasize how much he's not rigid in that, uh, that 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 mode you know the white sox the 2005 rotation and, and definitely the white sox who led the the all of baseball and fan graphs uh, war for their starting pitching for about a decade span in the in the 2000s they got by by not walking people and low home run rates uh, especially in regard to a homer happy ballpark and that came from a lot of throwing two seamers throwing cutters jamming people getting weak contact rounds obviously that's not the way uh, the game is tilting right now. It's all about you know maxing out the life on your fastball and getting swings and misses off of it, not just weak contact off of it. And and, and Cooper will emphasize that hey, elevating your fastball, going up the ladder, uh, that's something that's always been a concept in their game, and and they're perfectly willing to do it. It's hard to miss the presence of uh, Raf Sotos and Kronos uh, cameras and. Uh, mentions of their prospect pitching who have been, had their track mandate broken down to them and how they've gone to four receivers and curveballs as a result of what they're doing. There's a lot of evidence that on an organizational level, uh, the White Sox are shifting or adjusting to what the rest of the league is doing and they're not out of step as they may be perceived to be. Um, how much of that, how that really compares to the modernization of the rest of the league, it's hard for me to say I only cover one team. I would bet they're not on the level of the Astros, obviously. Um, you know, Cooper would tell you that a, a lot of the things that they that have been emphasized in this technology is always stuff that they wanted in their uh, in their pitchers' arsenal. It's just an emphasis, uh, a case of emphasizing it more than maybe they used to in the past. Fangraphs is projecting the White Sox for sixty-two wins. That is pretty bad. Do you think that's light? Do you think that they will exceed that projection? I think it's light, but it doesn't hit me like where is that coming from? From a pure like, if you look at the like the FIP or the any pretty much DRA for their entire rotation, based on the strikeout rates uh, for a lot of the guys that they had last season and the walk rates, there's really not an encouraging case in the starting rotation. Contextually, I would say Carlos Rodon has been that guy in the past, and they're hoping that you know a year out from shoulder surgery that 
you know, he still has the ability to ratchet up to the upper 90s and still has a wipeout slider and can work vertically up in the zone and kind of be that big strikeout guy again. It's just a case of being healthy and being consistent. Um, Ronaldo Lopez was the type of like swing and miss guy that you would think someone who can ratchet up to 97 to 99 with his fastball and learn to slider in the past year could be. If that shows up over a whole season, he'll look like a legitimate uh, you know, mid-rotation major league starter. But even that is kind of, those are both, maybe it will, maybe it won't happen. And kind of the rest of the rotation is a lot more, you know, Ivan Nova is probably going to give you what Ivan Nova gives you, which is just a lot of strikes and a mid-four ZRA. And Lucas Giolito is a total wild card. And from beyond that, they're kind of still waiting for Michael Kopech to get healthy. Dylan Cease to get to the majors. Uh, Dane Dunning to get healthy again. And then seeing if he can kind of resume the fast track he was on. There's a lot of uncertainty of that rotation, and it's certainly feasible to see a situation where Rodon's strikeout rate doesn't come back. Ronaldo is kind of hovers around the the mid seventeen percent strikeout rate he posted last year, and doesn't really take a step forward. And you have a rotation where really no one's above average, and obviously that's going to struggle. So I, I think it's uh, there's a lot of variables with their pitching development, and, and you're you're right to ask about it, and whether or not Cooper is in the right direction with it. I, I think they are, but it's. Uh, I don't know how much fruit it's really going to bear this season, and if it doesn't, they definitely could be quite bad again. Lastly, before we wrap it up, I wanted to ask you about Harold Baines getting into the Hall of Fame. Just from an analytical perspective, he's one of the worst, and I use that in quotations because obviously being in the, the worst player in the Hall of Fame, you're still very good, but he's one of the worst players to get inducted in the integration era. And I'm just curious how that has been perceived in Chicago and among White Sox fans. I think the term I've used for the White Sox is that they're a especially self-reverential uh, organization. They very much believe in, in celebrating their own history, and even though that history doesn't include a lot of playoff appearances and a lot of uh, you know championships, they, they like to celebrate their guys who they felt like were uh, core pieces of their, their history uh, of some of the good teams that they've had. So guys like Harold Baines, they keep around forever. They... They really uh, worship a guy who was essentially just good for a very long time and now being honored as a guy, an all-time great. So for the most part, I, you know, Harold is so beloved personally uh, and uh, was revered as a, as a coach, even though that, that wasn't necessarily like he's not the vocal guy for where that coaching would be the ideal uh, career path for him. Everyone just had such high regard for him as a person that, you know, they've thoroughly celebrated uh him getting in. I think Jerry Reinsdorf has talked to media maybe one or two times since I've been covering the team for now my third year, and one of the time was to basically celebrate Harold Baines. Like That's how much uh, he mattered to the org. From a Chicago standpoint, I think a lot of it is viewed as uh, maybe Reinsdorf and Tony La Russa having their influence over a guy that they like and having kind of an uneven influence over the Hall of Fame. They've denied that uh in record as far as having any room and like twisting people's arms or anything like that but it 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 kind of fits along with the the white Sox being a team that you know celebrates their own as as thoroughly uh as any team out there i mean in all intents and purposes mark burley is the kind of a you know just a guy who was a number three starter unglamorously for 15 years but for the white Sox, he He's revered as one of the, the, the greatest pitchers of all time, as far as anyone's seen, just because 
he's just that well liked. Uh, Paul Canerco, for the much of his career, was probably just your standard, slightly above average first baseman in terms of production. But he was the captain, and he was the best hitter on a World Series team. So this that this is a organization, this is a fan base that legitimately asks itself if Canerco or Burley should be Hall of Famers, even if from the outside their numbers probably don't indicate that it's even consideration. So Harold Baines kind of fits along with that kind of mentality. You've been listening to James Fegan. James covers the White Sox for The Athletic. You can give him a follow on Twitter at JRFegan. James, thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today. Thanks for having me.